I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. This is what the country was warned about when it started to reopen. Coronavirus thrives when we get careless. Now Texas, Florida, and other jurisdictions are shutting back down. The federal task force is briefing for the first time in almost two months. The number of confirmed new coronavirus cases per day in the United States hit an all-time high of 40,000 today, eclipsing the mark set during one of the deadliest stretches in late April. Dr. Ashish Cha at Harvard's Global Health Institute said backtracking may not be sufficient. They opened too fast. They opened up against where the data and evidence was, and they really need to start uh, making some reversals. They could do that, Cha said, by mandating masks. We have to have mandatory mask wearing. Uh, it's a pretty small step to take to make sure that our economy can stay open and our hospitals don't end up getting overwhelmed. New ABC News Ipsos polling shows a country growing more concerned about contracting the virus and less ready to get back to everyday life. 56% of Americans said the country moved too quickly to reopen. 89% said they've worn a mask when going out in public in the last week. We're early in this pandemic. People have to wear masks when they're outside, wash their hands, maintain social distance, and put pressure on your political leaders to take this seriously. Uh, it's going to be much easier to get through it if we do that. While some governors and mayors now backtrack. Phase three, we are on track for Monday, July 6th, and that's exciting. Mayor Bill de Blasio said New York City, once the nation's coronavirus epicenter, would begin to reopen nail salons and spas. Every everyday businesses in your neighborhoods that really help you take care of yourself. While cases retreat in New York, they skyrocket in Florida. Alabama is running short of ICU beds. Texas is closing bars and telling restaurants to reduce capacity as the state saw a record number of cases this week. Dr. Christy Murray joins us from Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. Why is Texas getting worse? It's getting much worse, um, and it's incredibly concerning with the numbers that we have right now. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with multiple factors. I think one being um, loosening of restrictions. When we had everything under control and everything, people were staying home, we had the same home orders. Um, people were being extremely good and were very worrisome, had a good healthy dose of fear around this virus. Um, I think people were doing much better to protect themselves. And then now, I think one, people have loosened up those um, concerns and fears. I think part of that has to do with some of the social media that's been going around. And I think also um, just people getting ready. They just want to get out of their homes. They want to rejoin society again and get back to their normal lives. And then we also had the loosening of restrictions legally in terms of what the governor's orders have been and the lifting of those restrictions. And, you know, when we look at the numbers that we have right now, we've had a, a steady increase really since that first phase one reopening that happened at the beginning of May. And, you know, with this type of virus, that's exactly what we would expect. It's a virus that is spread very, very easily from person to person, highly infectious. The more you have people in contact with each other, the, the more the virus is going to spread. And if we hadn't done anything at all, no public health measures, we would have seen 48,000 people in Houston in ICUs by the mid of May, assuming the rate that we were going at. That's how infectious this virus is. We're a city of 7 million people. Now, take in mind, we only have 2,700 ICU beds. So if you have 48,000, and this is what happened in New York and Italy, when you have this massive overwhelming of your health system, you can't take care of those patients. You're right so, there in the Texas Medical Center. I hear right. that it's getting close. I mean, it seems as if the ICU capacity is nearing full. 
and it has in a couple of hospitals even. Um, so we're starting to have overflow into other hospitals as well. And, you know, we're the largest medical center in the world. The hospital that I'm at, Texas Children's, is the largest children's hospital in the United States. And if we're concerned about our capacity, and especially with our adult hospitals that are around us, we're very concerned about their capacity. Um, you know, we should be, of all people, able to handle this. And we're really worried. Are people just not getting that message? Do you need to speak even louder? Some people who just don't trust the media, they feel like it's being hyped up, the fear is being hyped. They uh, don't really pay attention to what happened in Italy and New York and Washington. They only are paying attention to what's going on around them. And if you don't know anybody who's sick, you don't, or you know somebody who did get sick and they just ended up not even being hospitalized, then it kind of plays into that. See, this isn't really a big deal. And they're making it out to be worse than it is. And here we are suffering for it. And so I think a lot of it is just this, this mindset of, you know, how serious is this? You know, maybe I'll go ahead and take a dose of, you know, chance of getting it, knowing that I probably wouldn't die. Um, you know, the whole thing about flu kills more people than coronavirus has, which is just ridiculous. Um, we're, we're definitely seeing way more deaths from coronavirus than we've ever seen with flu. You know, I think it's a lot of it is just the mindset of people. And, and I, you know, and I sit on the side where I'm looking at the data every day. I'm looking at our case counts here, looking at our hospitalization counts, looking at what's happening nationally and internationally. And you see much more the reality of how serious this is. And it's hard to communicate that sometimes. It's not just Texas. It's, it's been, as you say, a problem in New York, but now elsewhere. Right. No. And I think as soon as we loosen up restrictions, that's exactly what's going to happen. Masks work very effectively, especially if both people are wearing them. You, you know, it can't be just one or the other. It needs to be both people having the social distancing in place, having good um, hand washing. You know, when I'm in the car, as soon as I get out of the grocery store, I immediately use my hand sanitizer before I take off my mask. You know, just being super smart and thinking about the way this virus is spread. And I think not being complacent and thinking that well, if I get it, it's probably not going to be a big deal because I'm young or I'm healthy or I'm not at high risk. I mean, you know, even on our side, we see kids who get really, really sick. And it's not something that you want to, really, you know, to me, it's like Russian roulette. Do you really want to play that game? Dr. Christy Murray at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. Many of the newest infections in Texas and other states are skewing younger. And we heard a new strategy today from Dr. Deborah Burks of the Federal COVID-19 Task Force. Thanks to the millennials who have been heeding our guidance, they have been coming forward and getting testing. And so whereas before we told them to stay home, now we are telling them to be tested. And this is a great change for us because it allows us now to find the asymptomatic and the mild diseases that we couldn't find before. This marked the first time the task force briefed Americans since April 27th. Dr. Anthony Fauci spoke directly to younger Americans. The overwhelming majority now of people getting infected are young people, likely the people that you see in the clips and in the paper who are out in crowds enjoying themselves, understandably. No blame there, understandably. But the thing that you really need to realize that when you do that, you are part of a process. So if you get infected, you will infect someone else who clearly will infect someone else. We know that happens because the reproduction uh, element of the virus is not less than one. So people are infecting other people. And then ultimately, you will infect someone who's vulnerable. Now, that may be somebody's grandmother, grandfather, uncle, who's on chemotherapy, aunt who's on radiation or chemotherapy, or a child 
who has leukemia. So there is what I call, and, and again, I just want to bring this out without making it seem that anybody's at fault. You have an individual responsibility to yourself, but you have a societal responsibility because if we want to end this outbreak, really end it, and then hopefully when a vaccine comes and puts the nail in the coffin, we've got to realize that we are part of the process. Fauci conceded part of the government's strategy for containing the virus is not working. A substantial proportion of the people who are getting infected do not know they're infected. They're not symptomatic. They're asymptomatic individuals. The classic paradigm of identification, isolation, and contact tracing to actually contain that is very difficult to make that work under those circumstances. You superimpose upon that the fact that even with identification, isolation, and contact tracing, often the dots are not connected. If you get on the phone and talk to people who are in some of these communities, you find that a lot of it is done by phone. And when it's done by phone, maybe half of the people don't even want to talk to one who they think is a government representative. If you live in a community that is mostly brown or black, you're in a different situation that maybe 70% of them don't really want to talk to you. You can identify a contact, but you don't isolate them because you don't have the facility to isolate them. That is what's not working. So what we're going to do, and we are doing, and you're going to be hearing about this, you know, flooding the, flooding the area of a community to get a feel for what's out there, particularly among the asymptomatics. Dr. Fauci pleaded for compliance with social distancing and wearing masks. We're going to take you to other places where the virus is surging, including Mississippi. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to TJ Holmes. Thanks, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. All right, now CDC has got some new info for us, and pregnant women need to hear this. Absolutely. This is a big and special population, TJ. We've been following it closely. Here's what we know right now about this um, unique group of people. Number one, pregnancy does produce a state where your immune system is compromised. We know that at baseline. Pregnant women, we also know, are at an increased risk of complications from other respiratory viruses like influenza. The risk of pneumonia right now to the mother is thought to be the major risk for COVID-19. Based on available data, there seems to be minimal risk to the fetus, which is good news. Um, And pregnant women, as of yesterday's CDC announcement, more likely to have severe complications with COVID-19, so more likely to be admitted to the hospital, more likely to require ICU admission, more likely to need mechanical ventilation, but luckily less risk of death. And, and Dr. Jen, I have to say, I'm sorry, because you're a friend, I forget how smart you are, <laughs> uh, because we talk about other things, but you're a board certified OBGYN. That means you had to learn a whole host of other specialties, the whole body, yep. a lot of it. So what are now the working theories about what we're talking about with pregnancy? Well, this is what we're looking at right now when you talk about COVID-19 disease in pregnancy. Number one, we have to remember that in obstetrics, we have two patients we have to worry about, the mother and the fetus. In terms of the effects on the mother right now, um, Um, We heard what the CDC says now, putting pregnant women in this higher risk group, um, but 
then you consider the fetus, the newborn, there's really limited data right now that suggests there's a significant risk of illness to the fetus, to the newborn. It is unlikely to have what we call vertical transmission, which is a spread from the mother to the fetus during pregnancy or in utero. Although there have been some case reports that have shown newborns with antibodies to COVID-19 at birth, and we're just hearing report out of Mexico of triplets born that then tested positive oh, via wow. nasal swab. So we are still collecting data on this group. Okay, pregnant couples hearing all this, what do they need to know? Well, here's my prescription as an obstetrician. Number one, I think it's really, really important for the couple, for the pregnant woman, double down on these masks, hand hygiene, social distancing. This is not forever. This is just for the 40 weeks of pregnancy. You don't want to miss any of those prenatal visits. That is really important to keep them um, and maintain that connection with your obstetrician or midwife. You also want to speak to your obstetrician or midwife and have a plan in place for if you develop COVID symptoms, if your obstetrician or midwife develops COVID symptoms. And we don't yet know what the role of testing, potentially even weekly in the third trimester, in terms of surveillance for COVID-19 may or may not be. And lastly, TJ, ACOG, which is our medical national uh, association for OBGYN, is urging the federal government to include pregnant women in the clinical trials for the COVID vaccine. Hello. We need to know whether that vaccine is safe and effective in this group of people. All right, Dr. Ashton, important information yes. as always. It turned out ABC's Kira Phillips in Washington for all the headlines. TJ, most Americans are more concerned now about getting sick with coronavirus. That's according to a new ABC News Ipsos poll. 76% of us expressing new levels of concern with many people believing the country has reopened too fast. About nine in 10 Americans saying they now are wearing a mask when they leave the house. And the travel headline today, American Airlines dropping its empty middle seat pandemic policy. Our Gio Benitez reporting that the airline says it will be selling all seats on flights beginning July 1st. TJ. Talk to you again soon. You have a good weekend, all right? You too. Uh, earlier this week, the uh, state of Mississippi recorded its highest single-day spike in coronavirus cases. Joining us now to weigh in on these impacts amidst the state's reopening is the mayor of Jackson, Shokwe Antar Lumumba. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. How close are you to having to reimpose some of those restrictions and possibly close business in your town again? Well, well first and foremost, pleasure to speak with you. Uh, it is something that, that is uh, very present in my mind uh, and something that we discuss with our COVID task force on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis. Uh, the case numbers rising, uh, looking at the hospitalization rates, uh, the amount of ventilators available are all factors that we're looking at uh, in quite possibly reimposing these restrictions. So again, how close do you think you are right now? Uh, well, what, what we know is that there are 192 new cases in the state of Mississippi. Uh, we are approaching about 1,800 cases uh, in the in the city in the Hines County area, which Jackson uh, is the largest city within. Uh, and so uh, we are watching it day by day. Uh, right now, the first effort is is one of uh, communication and admonishment, a gentle admonishment of our residents to take uh, the precautions that we are advising them to take. Uh, and I think that as we have seen some of the news cycle change, not only locally, but nationally, uh, people have grown uh, less uh, concerned about that over time. And I think that that is leading to the spike in the numbers. And so we want to give an opportunity uh, to speak to people's understanding and, and take this seriously before we have to make the very 
uh, difficult decision to shut things down again. All right, Mr. Mayor, I like how you put that gentle admonishment. You need to get on to folks right now. Do you not? When you walk around your town, are you encouraged or discouraged by the level of mask uh, wearing and social distancing? It sounds like this is what we're getting at. You reopened and now people are getting a little relaxed. Yeah, well, well, first and foremost, I was quite honest with our residents from the beginning uh, that I did not uh, actually want to reopen. Uh, but ha not having a uniform policy across the state, uh, we were, in essence, placed on an island where everything was open to the north, south, east and west of us. And, and my analogy is if you're on an island, the chances of getting wet are a lot greater. Uh, and so I still remain concerned. Uh, and, and as I have seen people, I have been in the news uh, in recent days just speaking to that. And, and so we are prepared to start issuing citations. We have made an effort not to criminalize this effort, uh, but we need people to take seriously uh, the need to take care of themselves and their families. And so we, we take that seriously. That is one of the principal responsibilities that I hold as mayor. Uh, and I won't hesitate to do whatever is necessary to make sure that I protect my people. And your, your health care capacity there as well. You're, you're there in Jackson, but Folks in the surrounding area, as you've mentioned, when they need help, when they need good medical care, everybody is going to be coming to your city, to your town, to your county, certainly. Um, what is your capacity right now to handle maybe an influx, a certain rush of people into your health care system there? Well, we're depending heavily on the Department of Health uh, to give us that information. Uh, in fact, we've been struggling with some data sharing information in recent days uh, that the attorney general has been holding out on us. And, and so that is critical, not only to our understanding of what our full capacity is, uh, but also in terms of our response, how we coordinate on a census track level, how we respond in the community. And so what we've been speaking to is not only to our residents and the understanding that they have, we've been speaking to the surrounding communities because you rightfully point out that not only are we the largest city by a factor of three, the capital city, we are the capital of healthcare. And so uh, we have three major institute, uh, major uh, medical facilities here in Jackson. And so uh, we don't want to apply too much pressure on them. Uh, and it's critical that we understand those numbers and that the entire area adhere to these regulations. And finally here, Mr. Mayor, um, on another note, but something that Mississippi is in the news for these days has to do with the controversy over the state flag. Many people are pushing uh, for that flag to be changed because it does have that Confederate flag up in the corner of it, that Confederate symbol. Um, you have been on the record. You want that flag to be changed. Do you think, however, that it should be left up to the voters who did vote overwhelmingly in 2001 to keep the flag the same? Or do you think the legislature should make a move? Well, I'm, I'm happy to see that the coalition to take it down is it's a growing coalition statewide. Uh, but I think that this is a moment that, that true leadership can prevail and the legislature can, can take the very bold step of taking that down. Uh, if we look historically at giving Mississippi the right to vote over issues of civil rights and, and, and racial justice, then, then, you know, it's not the most shining example of, of you know, progressiveness. And so I'd like to see the, the leadership take up uh, the, the mantle and, and take it down immediately. All right, Mayor Lumumba, we are uh, keeping an eye on things there in your state and in your city. We certainly are wishing you all well. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you. All right, we have a whole lot more here ahead on what you need to know, including ordering a quarter pounder with safety. 
top McDonald's management here on what the fast food giant is doing to keep customers from getting sick with COVID as they start to open up more and more of their restaurants. And a young pride activist making his mark, his Empathy Alliance. Today's focus in our series on young change makers. Stay with us. All right, welcome back, everybody. Dr. Ashton here with me once again, and we're talking about magic. I like this term, magical thinking, thinking is what we're talking about. It's a real term about. in psychiatry, yeah. actually, and you and I were talking about it because I'm really struggling to understand from a medical and behavioral standpoint why people are not listening to medical and scientific advice, facts, data, recommendations, guidelines, and putting other people's lives directly at risk. So this term magical thinking in psychiatry, it's literally when when one's thoughts or actions work in a way that defies commonly accepted laws that are in evidence. And I think that's what we're seeing. And when you when you hear, listen, I'm lucky I stay in the medical lane. I don't want to get into any other political lane. But when I hear people say you can't tell me what to do, I think, well, we can enforce seatbelt laws. We can enforce not driving under the influence laws because that not only affects your health, but those around us. We are in a really important phase right now with this pandemic and not just people's health and lives depend on this, but our livelihoods depend on it. So I'm thinking more and more about this magical thinking in a way to understand why people are not following scientific but recommendations. But didn't we, or don't, don't people maybe think, okay, we did what you told us to do. We've been doing it for several months. Things have gotten better. Right. And that's usually what distinguishes right? adult thinking from childlike thinking. Is it pleasant? No. Is it fun? No. Is it a little bit annoying? Yes. Yeah. But it's necessary right now. That, that's what adults do is they take a long view. They do what's necessary, not necessarily what we want. And I think until we all buy in, we're going to be feeling a lot of hurt. Dr. Ashton, thank you, you as bet. always. We're going to turn now uh, to something else. Well, McDonald's, of course, one of the most iconic restaurants in the world. But the next time you head towards those golden arches, your experience is going to look a little different than usual. Here to discuss how McDonald's is handling the latest phase of the coronavirus crisis as president of McDonald's USA, Joe Erlinger. Sir, thank you so much for being here. You all have 50 new processes in place for safety. I'm not going to ask you to list them all, but I'm a customer. I walk into a McDonald's restaurant. What am I going to see and what's going to be happening that's different? What is that experience going to be like? Thanks so much for having me, TJ. You will see some differences. Uh, You're absolutely right. Uh, You're going to see masks and gloves uh, on our employees. You'll see social distancing decals on the floors and the tables. Our self-service beverage bars are going to be closed, and of course our play places are going to be closed out of, uh, out of the utmost precaution. But you're also going to see a lot of things that are going to be the same. Uh, you'll still be able to get uh, our world-class, uh, world-famous French fries. Uh, certainly Big Macs will still be available. Uh, and while you might not be able to see the smiles underneath the mask, you'll see the smiles in our, our crew members' eyes. <laughs> oh, that's, that's funny. You, you listed the fries first, uh, <laughs> just to make sure people know. Uh, are the menus going to change much at all? I know you had to make some adjustments during this pandemic, but is the menu going to be about the same? Yeah, we did make some ch- uh, menu changes early in the pandemic. And, you know, we really did that to make the, the, the work and lives of our crew easier uh, in the restaurants. Uh, so we took some complexity uh, out of the restaurants. And actually what happened is our drive throughs got faster. Uh, the jobs were easier in our restaurants. Um, and we were more accurate as well. Um, so, uh, so those things have, have changed. But uh, certainly uh, all of your favorites, uh, like the Quarter Pounder with cheese, Big Mac, 
world-class, uh, world-famous French fries, um, <laughs> you will be able to get those. Okay, let me, let me see if I can ask you a question without you getting fries into the answer. Um, <laughs> tell, <laughs> tell me, uh, will the customers, are we going to be required to wear masks in the stores? Yeah, yeah we, uh, we base that uh, based on state and local regulations. Um, there certainly are uh, some states uh, and local regulations where masks are required, uh, and we're going to be ready to provide those to the customers uh, in those areas where they're required and the customers walk in without them. And you all are actually doing a decent bit of hiring around the country. That might be something of interest to a lot of people right now. What's happening with that? Yeah, we uh, announced uh, just recently that we're going to be hiring 260,000 people this summer. Uh, we think uh, there's great opportunities at McDonald's. We think this is a way to support the economy uh, and support our communities. And so, you know, in, in the last few years, we rolled out a lot of uh, creative ways, including digital ways, uh, for us to recruit and hire uh, people. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing. You know, we know there's going to be a lot of uh, students looking for employment opportunities um, this summer, uh, and, and we'll be ready to hire them. And, you know, if they stay uh, throughout the summer, uh, work on average 15 hours a week, uh, they can earn actually $2,500 uh, towards college tuition. We call this program Archways to Opportunities. Uh, we've given away over $100 million uh, uh, in, in tuition assistance over the last few years. We're really proud of this program. How are you determining right now which stores, which locations open for dine-in? I know you're open for, for curbside and, and, and the dollar to the drive through but, but which one? You don't have a lot of stores that are going to be open for dine-in right now, but how are you making that determination? Yeah, TJ, that's exactly right. You know, throughout the pandemic, we've had 99% of our restaurants open uh, for delivery, uh, dine-in, and, and curbside pickup. Uh, but we're really taking a very thoughtful and judicious approach to, to opening our dining rooms. You know, based on state and local regulations right now, we could have up to 70% of our dining rooms uh, open for people to come in and sit down and enjoy their meals. But we actually only have 10% uh, open. Uh, and that's because we just want to take this thoughtful and judicious approach uh, really make sure that uh, our customers are, are comfortable, uh, our crew are, are comfortable, and that we really provide a great experience when people do come into the restaurants. You know, one other thing of interest, I know you all put numbers out about sales going down, but in terms of a dollar amount, how much has this pandemic, I mean, it's a, it's a big company you have there, but it had to uh, be a lot of changes. How much have you all experienced in losses during this pandemic? You know, Throughout our 65-year history, you know, we've weathered ups and downs in the business. Uh, and I think McDonald's has some real staying power and real lasting power. Yeah, we really play a, a vital role um, within, uh, within our communities. We play a vital role as an employer. Uh, obviously, 95% of our U.S. system is franchised, so we're really about small businesses. Uh, so we're going to continue to... Uh, you know, to continue to operate, uh, we'll continue to support our franchisees uh, where they need it, uh, and we're confident that our current sales levels um, will uh, will continue to thrive and stay open. And these safety measures uh, indefinitely at this point in place? Uh, you know, for right now, we're we, they are going to be indefinite. I mean, we're not uh, we're not rushing uh, to the next stage of this pandemic. Um, you know, we talk here internally about what the next normal might be. So just like we're taking a very thoughtful and judicious approach as we consider um, you know, reopening dining rooms, uh, we're going to take that same thoughtful and judicious approach uh, as we consider winding down measures. We don't want to face a situation where we take uh, one step forward and two steps back. Uh, and, and so uh, you know, we think that uh, if we let uh, the safety uh, of our customers and safety of our crew guide us, um, we'll make the right decisions. All right, Joe Erlinger. Sir, thank you so much. Uh, for that information and some good info possibly for people out there looking uh, for some work, knowing that you guys are hiring. Thank you so much and good luck to you.
Thank you. All right, folks, it is Faith Friday. So here to lift our spirits and provide us with some great insight is award-winning producer, New York Times bestselling author, motivational speaker, and TJ Whisperer. Devon Franklin, uh, brother, <laughs> it is good to talk to you here. Um, so, look, we're, everybody's going through it right now, and it feels like everything's a burden. So you help people understand how the burden can be a blessing. We need to hear this. So, yeah, so here's the thing. Right now we are burdened. Um, but what I believe is that a burden is actually a blessing. Think about when you're in the gym. You know, when you're burdened, when you're stressed by the weight, what's happening? You're growing. You're becoming stronger. You're becoming healthier. And so when we look at life. These problems we're facing, the weight of them, helping our character, helping our integrity. So anyone right now that feels burdened, I would challenge them to flip it and say, I'm not just burdened, but I'm blessed because those blessings are going to ultimately help me not only have the life I want, but actually have the growth that I've been praying for. See, I, I wish I could follow up. I always want to argue with you, but I can't because you always nail it. So I, I got nothing. <laughs> Come on, uh, bring it, man. Bring it. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, something important here. A lot of people have been in their homes together with their significant others. You just had a, a wedding anniversary, um, but you and your wife been in the house together. Your wife's making good. A lot of people know certainly who she is. Um, but what is the key during quarantine to keep that relationship strong? Oh, wow. Listen, I've been married for eight years yeah. and I know all there's so many couples, you know, around the country and the world that were going through it during quarantine. Right. So <laughs> Megan and I, we learned three things. And I think it's not just going to work during quarantine, but I think it'll help anybody <laughs> after quarantine. <laughs> the first thing is follow the rhythm, not the routine. Okay. Quarantine and the pandemic completely broke our routine. <laughs> so every time we were trying to get back to a routine, we were messing up. But when we found the rhythm of the moment, we began to really appreciate each other and let the moments and the rhythm dictate our momentum. Number two, we actually started communicating more. This was the most time we spent together in a very long time. So communication, over communication. I mean, we talked about everything and I would encourage couples to communicate because it really helps the connection. And number three, have fun. We gotta have some fun. Listen, man, we would do karaoke in the house just by ourselves. She would cook, I would bake, man. We put on some R&B, some Bobby Brown, and we just have a good time. So you gotta have fun. And I think those three things will help couples, not only inside this last part of quarantine, but actually when they come out of it. Cooking, baking, and Bobby Brown. Man, I don't know anymore about hey. listening to you. I don't. <laughs> it's a good recipe. Right. Come on, TJ. <laughs> All right, we do have some questions here. The first question to you comes from, I believe, Sophia. Let's listen to this here. Hi, my name is Sophia Lucian from Broward County, Florida. Before the pandemic, I had all these plans for my life, where I would be, what I would be doing professionally and personally. But of course, all that has changed. What would you say to someone whose intention is to surrender as much as possible, but at the same time, the detour is so scary? Wow, that, that's a good one, man. Yeah, it is. Sophia, listen, I feel your pain and so many others feel your pain as well. Here's the one thing you got to know. First thing is that the pandemic is not working against your purpose. It's working for your purpose. You got to know that, that if the pandemic is happening, it's because it's going to help you get where you're supposed to go. It's not an obstacle to where you're supposed to be. The other part of surrender is like this. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, oh, I'm trying to fight my way through. But what I realized is I had to surrender. So if you are afraid, it's because you're alive. So don't look at fear as something negative. Look at it as something positive because you're actually in touch with how you feel. The third part is think about it as an amusement park ride, right? When you're going up, the, 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 the ride is about to drop. You're like this. But then what happens? By the time you get to that drop, you just got to let go. And when you let go, is it scary? Yes. But ultimately what goes down ultimately comes back up. 
So it's really important. When we surrender, we let go and we allow the ride of life to take us where we're supposed to be. And when we get to the end of the ride, we say, whoo, I can't believe I made it through. So, Sophia, you will make it through. All you got to do is let go and let this ride take you where you're supposed to be. All right. We've got to get one more in here from Jay. Let's listen. Hi, Devon. My name is Jay Sangstock. I live in Rancho Cucamonga, California. And I wanted to ask, how do you keep motivation to pursue a project when you don't really see a way forward for it? Motivation. Okay. <laughs> here, here's, here's what you got to do. You got to stay persistent. You know, certain projects take a little bit of time to happen. So just stay persistent with it. Too often we're so focused on it's not happening versus saying, you know what, I'm going to release it. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to stay joyful over this project. And I guarantee you over time it will happen. Anytime in my life when I've been frustrated and tried to make something happen, it didn't happen. But once I got back to the joy of the project, once I stayed persistent in the project, once I kept the vision of the project, believe it or not, it happens in its time. Stay persistent over your vision. Don't let this virus take your vision. I I got the notes, man. Good to see you, brother. I will talk to you soon, but thanks so much for being here, all right? I can't wait, man. Good to see you. Now, Pride Month, and we'd like to introduce you to a young changemaker who says empathy is the name of the game. I'm Samir Ja. I'm 18 years old. I'm from Fremont, California, and I'm an LGBTQ plus activist. I grew up in a mostly South Asian community. In this community, we don't talk about being LGBTQ plus. And so the only time I'd ever heard the word gay was when it was used as a slur, as an insult, something you definitely didn't want to be. I had been bullied all throughout elementary and middle school for not fitting into traditional gender norms. Freshman year of high school, I met my first ever openly queer peers. Because of them, I was able to be my true self. And so at 14, I decided that I wanted to use the privilege that I had to start being an activist, to advocate for people like me who didn't have the same support that I did. I started my nonprofit Empathy Alliance when I was 14, shortly after coming out. It's called the Empathy Alliance because I feel like empathy is the biggest thing that has helped me in my own coming out. To me, Pride Month is definitely a twofold experience. It is both celebrating how far we've come and as well all the amazing LGBTQ plus people that are out and proud today. The pandemic is absolutely impacting the LGBTQ plus community more than ever. There have been a lot of laws passed in the last couple of years that deny healthcare to LGBTQ plus individuals. If you're a healthcare provider and you don't want to provide service to LGBTQ plus individuals, it is getting increasingly easier to deny healthcare. You should never be able to deny someone healthcare just because of who you are. But especially in the time of a pandemic, when lives are being lost every day, it's impossible to look on the news or to scroll through social media and not see what's going on in our country. If you see things happening, speak up about it. If you see LGBTQ plus people on the news being killed, speak up about it. As much of a cliche as it is to say it gets better, it often does get better because there are people pushing for change. There are always people working to make things more inclusive, to make things better for LGBTQ plus youth. Dr. Ashton, 
What do you have for us here? Your you final know, thoughts. You okay. know, we've heard a lot about flattening the curve <laughs> in the past. Now I want to talk about something called raising the line. That refers to building the capacity in our health care system that we are seeing start to be taxed in a big way. Hospitals are becoming overburdened, too busy to acquire and take care of new patients. And so when you talk about raising the line, what that refers to is four things. Staff, supplies, space, and systems. And you're starting to hear about that. You're starting to hear about ICUs being full. There's, you're starting to hear about hospitals and medical centers asking for staff from other areas. That's a significant issue. Supplies we know have always been an issue in this pandemic. And then space. When hospitals start canceling elective surgery, that is the tsunami warning sign. Right, Dr. Ashton, it's been a pleasure being here with Likewise, you next week. I'm here with sir. you next week. Have a good right? one. As well? All right. Thank you so you much. And that's our program for today. I'm TJ Holmes. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.